Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of The Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit guypowell.com and sign up for more episodes. I am the author of the upcoming book, The Only Witness, A History of the Shroud of Turin. It is a historical fiction tracing a possible yet plausible history of the Shroud over the last two millennia. Today, we'll be speaking with Pam Moon, a longtime Shroud researcher and presenter. She's made a number of videos, published many papers, and spoken all over the place. So uh, with that, let me introduce Pam. Uh, Pam, for the last 14, uh, day, 14 years, when not prevented by COVID, she's gone to different venues, cathedrals, churches, schools, and prisons, and even the Muslim event called the Jalsa Salana. In 2012, Pam was part of a conference organized by David Rolfe, and he said the radiocarbon date is like a dead hand on people's interest in the shroud. To try and understand what went wrong with the carbon date, Pam created a model of the shroud and folded and unfolded it to try and understand the way the cloth has been damaged over the centuries. This led to a freedom of information request for Oxford University's sample photographs. Their photographs of the shroud were analyzed by Donna Campbell, a textile expert, and the images show significant repair supporting the work of Joe Marino and Sue Benford. They show a density of dye and gum on the sample, which Ray Rogers had also found in the corner, which was dated. In the recent brilliant film by David Rolfe, entitled Who Can He Be? Now available online, one of the Oxford photographs was included. Pam has carried out research into the shroud by looking into the history of the Holy Mandelian in Constantinople after 944 AD and the incense burn holes on the shroud. Welcome, Pam. So good to have you. Lovely to be here. Thank you for the invites. Uh, absolutely. So good to have you. Uh, so tell us your backstory on how you got involved with the Shroud of Turin. Uh, okay, so it, it started with my mother. So she saw a life-sized replica of the shroud, um, the front, when she was a young woman. We think maybe group captain Leonard Cheshire was taking it around the country and she had no Christian background, but she was astonished by it. You know, she sort of said, what is that? And it, that question stayed with her all her life. And so in the 70s, I read Ian Wilson's book. I, I watched David Ross films and, and I became fascinated by the shroud. Um, and that's where I started. And then about 2002, I started doing talks on it. I never fully believed the carbon date. If you know a little bit about the shroud, the carbon date just doesn't seem to make sense. You know, um, there's, a, there's a, a great quote from a poet called um, Rudyard Kipling, he wrote books, you know, The Jungle Book. And he said, I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I know. Their names are what and why and when and where and how and who. I, I'm, I'm misquoting him slightly, but those whole questions about what, why, when, where, you know, don't have any answers in the Middle Ages, whereas they have lots of answers if you're talking about Jesus. So in 2008, I wanted to, to show people um, what my mother had saw, and I, I bought shrouds from Barry, Barry um, Schwartz, who I know you've had on your programme, um, and, uh, and from then I created an exhibition. I was really, yeah. really blessed that the, the, the man who is currently the Cardinal of England, um, Vincent Nichols, came to my first ever exhibition and helped me on the way. Yeah, wonderful. You know, it's uh, it's really amazing because I also uh, purchased a uh, the, the, the front uh, of him as well yes. and uh, in black and white, not the uh, not the original yes. colors. And it's just a fascinating image. It's just so there's so much in there to, to learn. So uh, now one of the. Yeah. Now, one of the things that you're doing research on are the uh, the folding patterns and the fire and burn damage from uh, 1532 and 1036. Yes, absolutely. So when David said about it being a dead hand, I just sort of thought I, I really want to understand this a little bit more. So I made a model of this and I folded and I unfolded it to try and understand the different fold patterns. And, and obviously the, the Holy Mandelian fold pattern it's quite obvious you get the face if you fold it like that. The, the, the pattern which shows the man of sorrows is quite obvious. You just fold it like this and you get to see the whole body going down to the hands. 
Now, there's some burn damage on it that is the easiest to understand. The shroud was folded like this. So it's folded and, and, and there's lots of little birds. So this is the Lear shroud. I don't know if you can see that. You can see that the burns there on that. This is an image made in, in 1516 before the, the big fire. So that was one of the patterns. But the other patterns are there's two lots of water damage. So there's the water damage that goes across the chest that looks like a, a, a diamond and above the head. To create that pattern, you've got to fold it in half and in half again, and then you've got to concertina it up. And the water comes from the bottom. Now, that's unusual because in, in Europe, cloths are always stored horizontally in chests by and large. And this uh, vertical storing with water coming from the bottom is a Middle Eastern thing that you might find in with it. And, and of course, it's one of the things that's been argued that it, that it was part of the Holy Mandelian because this water damage um, is, is sort of Middle Eastern in its, in its origins. So let's go to the, car, the, the big fire in 1532. So it's obvious it's easy to work out how it was burnt. Now, silver burns at 961 degrees centigrade, so that's pretty hot, and it burns straight through everything. Now, if you look at the shroud, this corner, so this is the front of the, 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 the man on the shroud, and this is the carbon date corner here, and you can see that there's missing material there. Mm -hmm. And there's also missing material at the other end, okay? But the other two corners are present, so they're not missing. So it's not fire damage that created that problem because the fire would have just burnt them all, okay? Now, I've got a picture here somewhere. This is the carbon date corner. And you can see, I don't know if you can see that clearly. So this, yep. this area here is where they dated it. And you can see the color looks very much like the color of the scorch of the burn. And this is the, around here is, um, is the water damage from the douse water damage, yeah? Now, we know that this isn't burnt because it would have burnt all the corners. So what's going on in this corner? And that, that was one of the first things that got me interested. Um, and my personal hypothesis, and I, I'm, not, I, I'm not, a lot of Shradis aren't in agreement with me in this at all, but was that after it was burned, they folded it like this to dry it. Because they'd thrown water, if they hadn't thrown water over it, it would have burnt in a, in a blaze, but they put lots of dust water to put the fire out. And then I think they tried to dry it like this. And these two corners that are missing were side by side hmm. and water damaged. Whereas this corner that's opposite this here, the, the bigger missing corner, isn't water damaged at all. So they, I think they, they folded it put it away uh, and again this is very controversial people don't agree with me on this and 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 when they opened it up this was so badly damaged they removed and by damage by water can you see it is interesting that the water damage pattern on the, the the front and the back matches the mission corners both on the front and the back and also going back to the Lear shroud in 1516 you can see the feet I don't know if you can, I don't know if that's really clear enough, but the toes present on the shroud, which are no longer there. So we can no longer see the toes of the man of the shroud. And again, I think that may be because of water damage, dance water damage has changed and, and darkened the image so we can no longer see it. Okay, so bacterial damage. The first question I asked, Professor Ramsey, who is the, the head of uh, Carbon Date Lab in Oxford, is why didn't you autoclave the cloth? To see if, the, if there's bacteria on it, why didn't you remove it? Um, and he wrote back saying they didn't want to damage it with that type of intensity of heat. Anyway, in the correspondence, it came out that they got photos. So I put a freedom of information request on them and asked for those photos. I've got some pictures here for you to show you. So this, this is the, the sample that they were given to test. Mm -hmm. There's a, a crease here, which is quite dark. Mm -hmm. And now, and, and I mean, actually the sample was really, really tiny, but I've blown it up massively so you can see it. There's some really, I sent it to an Irish textile expert called Donna Campbell, 
And she corresponded quite a bit with Professor Ramsey to try and work out what was going on. And she did a report on it. And one of the first things she noticed is that the, the weave on this side is tighter than the weave on that side, which it shouldn't be. There's also lots and lots of threads that go through it. So I don't know if you see here, that here's a knot. Mm -hmm. Going across the knot is a white thread that wends its way across. It's not original to the shroud, it can't be, because it's too thin to be yarn. And it's, um, so, and it's, it's, just, it's just artificial, it's not supposed to be there. There's others over here that you can see. Now, Professor Ramsey also sent the reverse view. Someone had taken a view of the shroud, just a Polaroid camera in the lab um, that wasn't part of the official photos. And this is the back. And Donna had a look at this as well. And she noticed that there's staining here and here, obviously here, that looks like staining from a dye. She also told me on the telephone, the whole thing just looks too orange. Mm. She also noticed that there were stitches on the bias here, which mm. had probably created the, the curve and the crease. So, so there's lots of repair going on here. Now, I know you've had Joe on your programme and Joe talks very, very convincingly about the repair that he's found with Sue um, on, on, on the shroud. Well, and if, if you might, uh, on those uh, two pieces, though, you can also see that the, the direction of the weave is going in a different direction. Oh, yeah, no, sorry, no, uh, yeah, no, no that, that's just that you'd expect that in some way. But yeah, there is this, this no, sorry, this is just the reverse. So this is what it would look like. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, there, there's all sorts of, of weird repairs going on. Now, one of the most important things that was released is this image here. And originally it was misclassified, but eventually they realized because it's herring and reed, it must be the shroud. Now I've compared it with, so this is um, one of Mark Evans's stirp images of the shroud. And you can see that the shroud color should be a, a, a pale linen, a sort of whitish color. And then here is the marks of the, the, the thing that creates the image. Right. So it's slightly yellower where the image is, which is very fine. Um, this is the Oxford photograph, which David used in his film. It's called um, P2575 underscore nine. <laughs> you can see it's covered in gunk and it's orange. So it's not, it, it's been dyed. Now I looked a little bit into Ray Rogers research into dye on the shroud because he found dye in the rare sample and in the carbon date um, area. And uh, where's this? Oh, yes. And this is one of the things I love most about Ray's research. So this is thread 14 of the rare sample. And this is before and after um, hydrochloric acid. So this is 6N of hydrochloric acid applied to thread 14 and the dye comes out. Mm. Okay. But you can see on here that it's not just dye. There's a whole load of gunk, which is like a gum. Now I went to a textile, a, a dyeing expert, medieval dye expert, and she told me that in order for uh, linen to accept dye, you have to use um, a gum called gum tragacanth, and you have to pre-prepare the cloth with something called alum. Now, gum tragacanth is a bit like chewing gum, except stickier. Um, it's really pretty potent stuff. Um, and Ray Rogers discovered it took concentrated hydrochloric acid to get the, the gum out mm. of the, of the Ray sample. Um, and, and you know what it's like when you get chewing gum in your clothes. I mean, it, it's just so difficult to get out. You just get it out. Well, yeah, you, have exactly. freeze, you have to freeze it and then you might be able to get some. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, so the reality is, um, for whatever reason it all went down, um, the carbon date is just not reliable because yeah. it was taken from a sample that had been stitched, repaired, dyed with all sorts of gunk, which the labs admit they didn't remove. They, they certainly went nowhere near concentrated hydrochloric acid to get. Yeah, fascinating. I wow, I uh, I'm very impressed with uh, all of the all of the detail you've got there, and it, it oh. definitely makes sense. 
you know, there's different theories as to, you know, how, how the, uh, the dating was, um, you know, was, was done and how, what kind of effects than what they actually dated, uh, you know, and, and how it worked out. And then I, I liked Ray Rogers uh, thing as well, where he found cotton fibers potentially mixed in with linen fibers, which would definitely be, you know, a Jew would never do that back then. It had to be pure cloth. So then where did those cotton fibers come from? Exactly, exactly. And I mean, I, and I think, um, yeah, I think that if you look at it, the, the, the end of thread one, which has the, the, the cotton at one end and the linen at the other, you can see that the cotton has absorbed the, the, the dye quite well. Hmm. But the linen is quite resistant to it. So some of the fibres of linen don't look like they've absorbed the dye at all. Do you know what I mean? So, um, and I think they, they did probably splice lots of cotton into it to try and reinforce it and, and, and then stitch it to hold it all in place. Because I think um, it, it, it's obviously been very damaged over the years and, and it needed repair. Well, exactly. And, um, you know, and if you look even at this picture behind me on the uh, ostension of uh, 1611, uh, you know, you can see how they're holding it in those corners. You would expect that after hundreds of these exhibitions that it would start to, to come apart and then you'd want to repair it. So who do you think was the person or persons that did the repair? Do you think it was the poor Claire sisters or Father Valfre or somebody else? I think, I, I think, I was wondering if I've still got the picture here. I don't think I have. I, I think there's a, a series of, of different repairs. So I think that um, the Paul Clares obviously repaired it. Um, I think Blessed Sebastian definitely had a go in, um, in 1694. There's a picture of him on his knees in front of the shroud, weeping before it. And he said, um, the, the cross received the living Christ and gave him back to us dead. The shroud received the dead Christ and, and gave him back to us alive. Which I oh, think is a, is I a like wonderful that. way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And if you look, he, he, Blessed Sebastian stitched in black. And you can see tiny bits of black on the Oxford photos. And but most of his work you can see on the on the chest wound. There's some terrible, terrible black stitching. Hmm. But you can also see next to the chest wound, there are two patches, one on top of another. And the underneath patch has some fairly poor stitching and the patch on top has even better stitching. So I think, oh, and, and Blessed Sebastian also did the, 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 the dorsal corner. So if you look at this corner here, around this edge is the black stitching of, of uh, Blessed Sebastian. Hmm. So what I think happened was that it was repaired in, in, uh, in 1532 then again by Blessed Sebastian, and then probably in the 19th century, when yeah. they took Blessed Sebastian's stitches out of this corner and did a proper um, repair, which has pulled through here, but there's right. a very, very long stitch that goes out. Right. Through. Well, and even in that image there, you have the uh, the weave going in the two different directions. Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, Harry yeah. Moon, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So what is the, uh, what, what was the edge of the cloth? Uh, you know, normally you'd put like a seam and you'd fold it over and then, you know, whatever you, is, uh, is that what happened here with the, uh, the shroud? So if I took the edges, the raw edges, were they salvaged then or were they? Uh... Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it, I don't know a great deal about this. If you look at the, the shroud, there, there is this uh, long cloth um, that goes the length of the shroud um, on the, the corner that's been, there we go, there's a strip that goes the length of this. Mm -hmm. and, and John Jackson has argued very convincingly to me that, um, that it was once integral to the cloth. Mm. Because if you look at it under a transmitted light photograph, you can match up this strip with the cloth itself. And he argues that it was used to tie the feet together and to bind the body into almost like a, a cocoon. Right. Um, so that the body was bound together. Um, and, and so it's that that's missing. It's this strip that's missing. Mm. And, so, and, and the, so the salvaged edge would be done just to that strip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now there were also- The rest of it is done normally. There were also some uh, hints that on the other corner, uh, so what you're thinking is, is that the on the other corner from where the radiocarbon uh, testing was done, 
that that was damaged and it was cut out because of the damage? I mean, obviously, obviously other people think it's relics. Some people think it's wind damage. Some people think that it's uh, damage, as you were saying, from holding mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. But to me, the, if you, the, the things, there's, there's so many different elements. So if you look at the water damage on the back of the feet here, it matches the missing corners. Yeah. This is Dad's water damage after the fire. Um, the fact that you can see feet on the shroud in 1516, which you can't see anymore, but all you, you can see a lot of dad's water damage. Mm. Those are the sort of things that I would think might suggest, but I, I can't, you know, yeah, I can't. Yeah. I can't. Because I was, uh, I had heard of one other theory as well, is that uh, one or more of the uh, Dukes of Savoy were cutting threads out of it, and then either sewing them into a copy, into an official copy, or yes. were giving them away as a gift to somebody, and, uh, and so it's possible that 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 those were also done that way. Uh, yeah, and I think I think that's uh, yes, yes, and we we can't. It's difficult to go back in history, but. I said, my one question would be, <clears throat> if you look at the Lear Shroud again, where have I put it here? So this is what it looked like in 1516. Mm. And I showed it, and obviously the, the back, I haven't put the back in, it's a bit long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I showed this to my daughter once and she said, did it really once look like that? That the only damage was these burn marks where it was folded in four, that there's no fire. The corners are all present, the feet are there. Did, did it once look like this? Um, and I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think so, yeah. I mean, obviously, yes, once it did. Yeah. Once it didn't even have these burn marks either, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's uh, that, that, that's those pictures and then those, those four uh, poker holes or whatever they're from. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's something uh, we want to talk about next. But uh, I on that picture, though, it also has a strip down the right side. Well, on my right side, uh, not, it has a strip that's a little bit darker. Is that then a sewn in thing or what do you think that is? See on which, there? Which one? On which? On this yeah, or on, on this? The, yeah, see on the, on the one side, I guess, it, yeah, it's on the right side of that image. There's a slightly darker, uh, no, 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 of the other one, the other this one. one. Yeah. Oh, this is just writing. This oh, is that's just writing. writing. Okay. Yeah, and, and in fact, I spent a long time researching the, the Lear Shroud and came to the conclusion, and again, you have to take what I say with a pinch of salt because people don't always agree with me. Um, I, I came to the conclusion it was done by um, Lucas Cromash the Elder, who is the, he is a Renaissance artist as great as Leonardo. But he was German rather than Italian. He was the, the painter, the court painter for Maximilian I and Maximilian commissioned some um, photos of the shroud, some pictures of the shroud. Um, so, and, and this is writing in a Bavarian text and, and, and Lucas Cronache was, was from Bavaria. Okay. So, um, okay. I mean, whether it is him or not, I, the signature looks like his signature. But, yeah. but, but whether it was or not, I, I don't know. Um, yeah, well, that's that's fascinating. I'm going to have to look that one up. Um, I hadn't seen, maybe I may have seen it and not recognized it, but I'll definitely okay. have to look that up. As well, if you, <clears throat> irrespective of this, if you look up an image called Christ as the Man of Sorrows mm -hmm. by Lucas Cronash the Elder, <clears throat> and there's one where you know he has seen the shroud. It is so stunningly beautiful. Yeah. So there's the deep crown. So Christ has this deep crown. He has whiplashes all the way over his arms. And in fact, it takes us back to before, it was done in 1516. So it takes us back to what the arms would have been like before the fire damage. You can actually see the whiplash down the arms. Um, you can see a whiplash to the face. You can see a whiplash to the, uh, just to the eye, across the eye. Um, this is somebody who clearly see, had seen the shroud. Mm. Yeah. And it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm also uh, uh, interested in how the arms were laid. So his arms, uh, <clears throat> you know, the, the shoulders were dislocated, but it looks like the arms, this part of the arm is laying flat, and then the arms come across as, uh, you know, as a groin. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, and his hands are there, um, which kind of gets into uh, the other thing, which is the the holy blood of, of Bruges. 
And uh, so maybe yeah. talk about that. Got that too. Here we are. Here's the honey blood of Rouge. Yeah, let's talk about that one a second. Okay, okay. So now, um, a, a few years ago, I did an exhibition here at the church. And, and for years, I have told people that the reason that there are no thumbs on the shroud is because of medium nerve damage. And I, I, um, I, my GP, who is an Oxford-educated, very, very bright man named Andrew Hussleby, came up to me afterwards and he said, that's actually wrong. If you get medium nerve damage, what it actually does is cause the thumb to go out, not in. Hmm. It causes the thumb, it's called an eight-hand deformity. And actually, we're having a conference here in a couple of weeks' time, and I hope that Andrew's going to talk about that um, at that conference. Now, so I, I then went to... Um, a, a, a funeral director to try and understand why there are no thumbs. Is there, is, could there be another reason why there are no thumbs on the shroud? And uh, the mortician there explained to me how he lays people out in death with the arms like this. Mm -hmm. He crossed the arms across each other. And especially with a, a naked, Christ on the shroud is naked. The, the arms give him privacy and the way they're held. But the funeral director also told me that in a, in a normal funeral where you have a coffin, the arms would be held in place by the wood of the coffin. Mm -hmm. But in a shroud burial, that doesn't happen because the weight of the arms, it, what happens with rigor mortis is it, it, it sets in initially and then it relaxes and then it sets in again. So six to 12 hours after the death of Jesus, his muscles would have relaxed again, okay? And the arms could have fallen apart with the weight of the arms pulling away from the body. So in a, in a shroud burial, and I, I've spoken to people from the Middle East, um, a doctor actually from the Middle East, who said that they want to keep a line in a shroud burial. So you will often tie the hands together, the, th the thumbs together behind the hands. Um, to keep that position. And if you look at the story of, uh, of John's description of, the, of the, the Gospels, he talks about Jesus being buried in the burial practices of the Jews. Mm -hmm. Now he's described that burial practice only 10 chapters before with the, the raising of Lazarus. Um, so with the raising of Lazarus, Jesus says, untie his hands and his feet, which would suggest that the hands and feet of Lazarus were, were tied together. Now, John Jackson would argue that the strip that was across the top was used to tie the feet together and to create a, like a cocoon. Not enough, in my opinion, to hold the, the arms in place. And I wonder whether this, the Holy Blood of Bruges, um, could be the blood that was, uh, the bandage that was held his thumbs together. Now, the vial came from Constantinople. It was probably brought to Bruges by Thierry of Alsace. Um, and um, the blood is red. It's the same, the carmine red, same color as the shroud. Mm. Now, one of the wonderful things about the, the, the Holy Blood of Bruges is that you can go, you could go to Turin, but you wouldn't see the shroud today. You could go to um, Oviedo, but you wouldn't see the sedarium unless it's one of the few days of the year where it's on display. If you went today to Bruges, you could stand a foot away from mm. this and, and see it so clearly. And it is beautiful. The color of the blood is beautiful. Mm. Now, in, in Bruges, they believe that Joseph of Arimathea wiped blood from the body of Christ. But I'm not sure that fits Jewish burial practices because right. they tend to keep things, they don't tend to wipe blood away because it's so sacred. So this is a hypothesis that it, it could have been used um, as one of the other, the strips of linen John describes are plural. Uh, one for his feet and around the body, and maybe one for his hands. Yeah. Well, I have uh, a couple of thoughts on that as well. As, uh, yeah. I, I think you're right. I think, you know, when you, when you have your hands, you have to have the thumbs. It's the thumbs that get tied together. And to your point with, uh, I can't remember the doctor's name, is if the, if the, uh, this, you know, if the nail went through over here somewhere, uh, it would seem like, you know, it's this tendon here that pulls your thumb out. 
And if there's not a one corresponding to that, it's going to pull it out and not push it in. So uh, anyway, that that's I guess an argument for the for the medical folks, not for absolutely. us. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. But uh, I I do believe though that something had to hold his hands together because um, uh, you know to your point, uh, otherwise they'd fall you know they'd fall to the sides, and uh, you know they wouldn't be able to get his hands together like that, uh, and then do that cocoon wrap around him with the uh, with the shroud. Yeah, absolutely. But but also there's a there's a, a significance in, in Jewish thought in that you know the words of the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your spine, and all your strength. And you bind it to your forehead and you bind it to your wrists. Mm. And I wonder if that they also did that, you know, that, that they actually, along with the, the tie on the thumbs, is the right. words of the Shema. Yeah, because there are but some you can't see because the hand covers it. Yeah, well, but there are potentially some uh, hints of leather straps around his arms. Uh, that would be the uh, phylactera, I think phylactery. Phylactery, yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, those are uh, interesting yeah. theories. Yeah, but but I think I think you're right, though. I think in order to keep those hands together, because they would fall to the side, is you have to then tie something, and tying the thumbs together is definitely a practice that that would make sense. So uh, yeah, fascinating. Um, all right, so let's uh, let's go back now to the uh, the Madrid Skylitzes. Uh, oh, oh, my favorite book. Well, the Bible <laughs> is my favorite book, but uh, <laughs> but look, this is this is um, this is the book I bought. It's the most expensive book I have ever bought. Uh, this was two hundred and fifty pounds <laughs> in British money. I don't know what that is in dollars. And I bought it because of this image. Okay. You, you know, I said that I was looking at this fold pattern where mm -hmm. you fold the shroud and you fold it again that way and you get an image that looks like that. Well, I saw this image and I, I don't know why, I don't know what I was looking for when I saw it, but suddenly it seemed to me that this flat image here with a head on it was the shroud. I, I don't know why, but but I did, and I um I bought this book, and it's got every text, and it's got every illumination in it. Now the sky the skylitzes is is a copy. The original would have been made about ten ninety by this man called John Skylitzes, and the the Madrid skylitz is called Madrid because it's in Madrid. Um, was made in Sicily about the, the 1130s, and it's a copy, and it's got mistakes in it. Mm. But it's really, really important. It's the only surviving history from that period in Constantinople. And it's got um, pictures of Greek fire. That's the only way we know what Greek fire might have looked like. So it's an important document. Now, it shows the arrival of the Holy Mandelian. Here we are. Can you see? Yep. So this is the arrival of the Holy Mandelion. And you can see that it's a flat cloth with a three-dimensional face on it. This is Romanos I, who sent 80,000 men to Edessa to get the Holy Mandelion. Uh, and it arrived on the 16th of August, um, 944. Now, Romanos was deposed shortly after that. And can I just show you this? This is his son. Constantine the seventh, who became the emperor. And this is his, um, uh, so this is Romanos the first's grandson, Romanos the second, who became co-emperor with his father in 945. Now, mm -hmm. I show you this because a good friend of mine, Joanne Bywater, discovered the significance of the robe that they are wearing, okay? Mm. They are wearing the loris. So the king here is being blessed by Christ. This isn't just a face like the Holy Mandelion. This is the whole body of Christ. And the king wears a crown and the loris. Okay. The loris represented the winding cloth of Jesus, the burial cloth of Jesus. And they'd been wearing it since Justinian I, who was the, the emperor when the Holy Mandelion was discovered in Edessa. And the first sign of, a of the loris on a coin is in about um, 
680 um, with Justinian II. So I sometimes think that we've got it the wrong way around. We think that the Holy Mandelian was just the face. Mm. I think these people always knew that it, it was the whole cloth. Yeah. And they wore it around their necks. Yeah, interesting. So I bought this book. <laughs> this is my second horribly expensive book, which is the, it's called the, um, the Book of Ceremonies by Constantine VII. Sometimes you love these people. I, I would love to meet some of these people. I mean, obviously I'm far too humble, but these are kings and queens. He, he, he saw the Holy Mandelian and he describes wearing the loris and he describes wearing it on Easter Sunday morning. And he wore it, wore it um, to, because it was the burial cloth of Jesus and his resurrection cloth. Hmm. And he wore it in Hagia Sophia um, on Easter Sunday. Um, and I, I just think, I just think he, he, in, in, the, in the sanctuary at Hagia Sophia, they had a, an altar that was 14 feet long. And I think they had the shroud on the 14 feet long altar. Oh, um, and the emperors yeah. were wearing their loris as they went, the emperor, as he went in. Mm -hmm. So, um, so let me show you can I just show you one more thing? So this is, this is called the Limburg Star Atiki, uh -huh. which was made by Constantine VII and Romanov II. And the inscription that goes around here talks about with this Christ smashed the gates of Hades and brought life to everyone. And this is, this is the holy woods of the cross of Christ. Mm -hmm. So I think what they're referencing there is the winding cloth. That it, it, on this, it actually references the winding cloth of Jesus mm -hmm. as one of the relics that were part of that. Um, yeah, wow. That is... Uh... I, I think... I, I think Personally, I, I, I think that the, the Shroud was the Holy Mandelian because of its influence in the, um, the Madrid Skylitzes. We see it being used in diplomacy. We see it used in lots of different things. Mm. But can I just go back to this image? Uh, yeah, please. Okay, so this image was misclassified in the um, Madrid Skylitzes because it says that it's the death of King um, Leo V. Now, Leo V died in 820 AD, okay? But the army is the Varangian Guard. And that army arrived in Constantinople in eight, 988 AD. So that's 168 years later, okay? So this artist has either got the army wrong or the king wrong, okay? And we also know that in the story of Leo, he had his head cut off, his arm cut off. He was hacked to pieces and left in the snow. So why is he being carried through this, the palace by, a guard, by an army that came to Constantinople 180 years later, 168 years later, <laughs> he sent? Right, right. Now, one of the really, really interesting things about this image is that this is, the army is the Varangian Yard. They're known as the Kievan Rus. Um, now, before the war, I remember talking about this at a conference three or four years ago. And before the war, I didn't really know much about Kiev. But I think we all know an awful lot about Kiev now, don't we? Yep. Since the war. I, I think we call it Kiev now, don't we? Um, but so, so the Varangian Guard were the Kievan Rus, okay? And they were sent by, I've got a picture of him here somewhere, this wonderful man called Vladimir the Great, who is the great saint of Russia and Ukraine, okay? And this is his beautiful wife, Anna, who was the daughter of Romanos II. She would have seen the Holy Mandelian without any question. And Vladimir, well, at their marriage, she only agreed to marry him if he became a Christian. 
And so, and he converted the whole of Ukraine and Russia to Christianity. Hmm. Interesting. And I think he was influenced and she was influenced by the Holy Mandelian, which I think is the Shroud. Yeah. Well, I have, uh, I have trouble with the uh, Mandelian. Uh, people originally thought it was a face cloth to wipe yeah. Jesus' face. And, uh, but all of the representations of the Mandelian always show the neck. Yeah. And so if you're going to wipe your face, it's not, how do you grab your neck and your face to be That's able to imprint brilliant. the image? And brilliant so, point. Yeah, so, uh, so it, there has to be something more than just a, a, a cloth that wiped his face. And because uh, otherwise you wouldn't get the neck. So to your point, and then Ian Wilson's point as well, is that it was the shroud in the way it was folded just there at the neck. And so, uh, you know, yeah. and that's then how it was shown. Yeah, I mean, I think we're all very, very grateful to Ian for the work he's done and, and yeah. you know, yeah. tracing that history. And uh, yeah. Yeah, the other thing uh, that I'd love to see some research on, um, and I don't know, it may not be easy now, but is if, um, who was the king that went over to get the uh, the, the Mandelian from Constantinople? Romanov the first. Romanov the first. Um, if he went over there and either paid for it or just stole, not stole it, but took it with his army, then you would think there would be a historical uh, event written down on the Muslim side. And uh, that would describe that, hey, we just got 500 centenaria or we just got uh you know invaded by an army with eighty thousand people because at the time that was all muslim and it was owned you know by the the, the muslim uh faith and then the muslim country whatever that was and uh, so you would think that there might be uh, a corresponding writing that either money was paid or an army came over and that that event would be recorded yeah. somewhere so it'd be interesting to at some point to be able to do some research uh you know it right now it'd be, it'd be a little yeah. difficult to do that in yeah. iran today but at some point it would be interesting to see if there's some archives in uh uh you know on that yeah absolutely that, that's a really interesting point yes i mean i think i think i don't think they wanted to part with it i mean i think that um it was used it was used as as my friend joe was telling me this as well as a, pala, a pala, palladium palladium um how do you say that it's it's a it's a term where something is used to bring blessing in a time of crisis. So if you go back to the Madrid Skylitzes, um, the reason that they carried the shroud, and we know that there's a text that they carried the shroud through the streets. Can I, can I just read it to you? If you yeah, please. You find yeah. it. Okay, um, uh, where is it? Because there was a drought and no rain had fallen for six months, the brothers of the emperor held a litany. Um, John carried the Mandelian, um, Constantine carried Christ's letter to Abgar, that came in 1031 to, to Constantinople, um, and George carried the Holy Shroud. The procession advanced from the palace to the Blanchonite church where we know that the, um, that the, the Crusaders had seen the Shroud. Now, um, the reason I said is going back to the Muslims, they didn't want to part with it because they felt that this sacred image had protected their city. Yeah. Even though as Muslims, they don't agree with images. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's a very interesting, yeah. Yeah. do you know what I mean? And if you look at the parallel, we've, we've just had a major war, haven't we, in the Middle East? And, and we, Romanos gave 200 prisoners. In, a, a, a long as a lot of gold and all the rest of it. But can you, can you imagine us giving, at the height of the war in... Iraq, us giving their prisoners back. Mm. Um, you know, there was something so special about this that they were prepared to give their enemies um, uh, yeah. their own well, their own troops. Well, one thing too, I I kind of um, now I, in my in my book I have it I have that story differently, but um, in uh, the other thing too is that the Muslims could have been holding on to it as kind of a ransom. To keep from the you know the West from invading at the time because hey listen if you invade us I'm going to destroy this you know this thing of Christ and uh, you know so there could be a whole bunch of different political reasons or other kind of things going on that that held it there um, you know because to your point as well the the shroud or the mandelion was kept in Odessa to kind of protect it 
and they would march it around the city, uh, potentially, at least according to Ian, uh, you know, they would march it around the city to keep it protected. And it certainly did that in uh, in 544. And then um, it didn't it didn't help against the Sassanids a little later. Uh, so um, in any case, uh, you know, it's it there are a handful of interesting things that could have happened that uh, in that history that is very uncertain across the board. And I do like yeah. your point about the Skylitzes that it, it does show uh, potentially what might be the, the Shroud of Turin there. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I, I can't say for sure, but the picture is an anomaly. It certainly isn't Leo V. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so what this flat object, the three-dimensional faces, I, I, and then who knows it's the Shroud? I, I, I've looked at every other history. I've looked at the death of every king in the Skylitzes. There isn't any other except this litany that it seems to fit. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, maybe they had a VP8 image analyzer to determine. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It was transported back in time. It's, oh, look at that. Yeah, but do you know, it's really, it's fascinating, isn't it? You mentioned it, you know, we have a VP8 image analyzer, we have the face of the shroud, and yet, and with all the science that we have, so few people believe in it. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's tragic, really. I, I You know, yeah. I, it's it's been used... Like it was used for COVID, wasn't it? As as a, you know, as something to protect the people and to bring us peace. And mm. um, you know what I mean? It, it is an incredibly powerful thing. It brings kings to to their knees. Um, it converted, in my opinion, or it was part of the conversion of yeah. Russia and Ukraine. Yeah. And yet today, uh, let's watch Netflix instead. You know, or do you know what I mean? Let's let's just distract ourselves with something else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all right. So I have one other question for you. Yeah. And then unfortunately, I well, I have a hundred more. Yeah, questions. No, no, no. <laughs> but um, so there were the coins. So there's coins, the Justinian coins from 640. And then there's some other coins with. Six, what six, appears, 18, I think, yeah, which have, have the, the Loris on and Christ right. on the other side. Right. Which which look like they have, uh, you know, the shroud image on it. And yeah. uh, in the 940s and also in the, the 640s. So if the. If the shroud is in Edessa at the time and Constantinople is the capital, then do you think that uh, Justinian sent then his his uh, his artists and coin makers to uh, Edessa and then to view it and then make it? Is yeah, that what I mean? If, if if I'm right with the Maximilian story uh, and and Lucas Cranach the Elder, then you know this this is one of the finest Byzantine uh, finest renaissance painters that there is who's being sent by a king to, to, to paint the shroud mm. and get a representation of it of course Justinian yeah. you know I mean he built Hagia Sophia um there's a wonderful story about about um Vladimir the Great of Kiev Prince of Kiev who sent envoys all over the known world at the time to, to try and he wanted to, to, to find a god he wanted to worship god and they said that when they went to the divine liturgy in Hagia Sophia, they didn't know if they were in heaven or on earth. <laughs> and and there's, there's this, you know, this magnificent cathedral that was built in six in the sixth century. Yeah, yeah. And if you can do that, you can send an artist to Odessa to take a to, to draw a likeness, can't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. No. I, um, well, the only thing though is uh, well then. Um, so in 600s, though, when that coin came out, Edessa was controlled by the Muslims, I believe. So he, that individual would have then gone into Muslim territory as opposed to, uh, you know, Roman territory. So, uh, you know, so that that well, I, I think I think though when you know, when when the first images like so like the I, I'm not sure about this bit. Yeah, I mean, I'm not either. That, yeah. But yeah. I, I think the, the sort of the, the Christ Pantocrator in Sinai was 600-ish, wasn't it? Um, well, I think they the got a model, and 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 the, one of the most interesting ones is there's a um, there's a mosaic in Ravenna that looks mm. very very like Christ, mm -hmm. yeah. which dates to about 530s. Yeah. Well, but that's um, and again, the Ravenna Muslim. was the capital. Yeah. Of, you know, one of the capitals of the of the, of the Byzantine Empire at that yeah. stage. I'm going to have to research the time yeah, on that because no, 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 because I, uh, you know, it it'd be interesting to see because then if that if that artisan had to go across the Muslim lines, so to speak, 
yeah. uh, you know, then that might be a, a different. And then also get to view it because he's not only got to, you know, get across the lines, but he also has to get permission to view it from whoever has control of it. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, that Pantocrator and the one that you have on your wall there, I think is from uh, that's the Syrian one. And I think that's from the five hundred something, uh, as yes. I recall. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that area, that that history, I've I've gotten so fascinated with uh oh, no. and you have too. And I am yeah, you, yeah, you, <laughs> you fall in love with these people, you know, you just wish you could have been a fly on the wall to watch them. And, uh, I know, I know. And then those books that you've got, now I'm gonna have to buy those books. <laughs> 250 pounds. Oh man. <laughs> Oh, wow. it's well worth it it's well worth it it's, there's so many treasures in it yeah well absolutely it certainly looks that way well listen um let me break off let us break off here um i'd love to do this again because we i had so many other questions for you and there's so many other really interesting things but at some point yeah we gotta we gotta call it a day <laughs> gotta call it a day gotta call it a day yeah. okay, just one more thing before i go a lot of these people are interrelated so um vladimir the great his grandson, his granddaughter married Harold Hadrada. And Harold Hadrada was a commander in the Varangian Guard in the 1030s. Oh. And Harold Hadrada died alongside a guy called Tostig in 1066, carrying the same axe. And um, his, the man he died alongside, his wife was the great, great, aunt of Thierry of Alsace, who brought the Holy Blood of Bruges to Bruges. There you go. No. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's enough now, isn't it? Yeah, that's, you've totally blown my mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, Pam, uh, thank you uh, so much. I really appreciate it. It's been, uh, it's definitely eye-opening and what you've now done with understanding the cloth and then also the Sky Litzies. Uh, now it's a whole nother set of research that I've got to do. But, uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And uh, otherwise, for more information, I know you have a uh, a, a shroud exhibit going on, and uh, there's more information on that on Facebook with the British Society of the Turin Shroud. The British, I can't even say it. The British Society of the Turin Shroud on Facebook. And uh, definitely you'll find out more on, on, on the shroud and, and all kinds of historical stuff. It sounds like it's really fascinating. So thank you very much. And uh, otherwise, uh, you know, for everybody listening, please stay tuned for this and many other videos on the backstory of the Shroud of Turin. Please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. And if you're listening to this one, also uh, go and view the video because Pam showed a whole bunch of different images that were critical to support a lot of the, uh, the research that she's done. So again, thank you so much, Pam. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thank you.